Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. I know it's been a while since I last uploaded an episode, so I just wanted to start with a quick apology. For those of you who don't know, I live in Hong Kong, so the recent coronavirus outbreak has meant that we've had to make some huge changes to the way that we teach and learn at my university. And for those of you who don't know, I'm also a PhD student and I'm planning on submitting this May, so it's quite a busy period for me. I'll have to ask you all to be really patient. Hopefully there won't be too many protracted gaps between episodes and hopefully the schedule will become more regular after May. Okay, so let's move on to the actual episode. This week we're going to be ending the saga of the Chinese Civil War so that we can finally move on to the founding of the PRC, hopefully sometime this year. In the past couple of episodes, we went through the Second World War in China and how it affected the people, as well as both major political parties, the KMT and the Communists. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the aftermath of World War II, which basically boils down to the resumption of the Civil War, which, spoiler alert, ends in the victory of the CCP and the founding of the current People's Republic of China. The victory of the CCP over the KMT was actually a shock to many people, and it was by no means obvious that they were going to win, and by all accounts, they actually should have lost. Chiang Kai-shek had a bigger army, more money, control of the cities, and at least the tacit support of the USA, who were hell-bent on stopping the spread of communism now that they didn't need to pretend to be friends with the USSR anymore. Despite the KMT's numerous advantages, there were factors both internal and external to the party that led to their downfall, including the state of China's society and economy after the war, the behaviour of the military, and international relations. Did the CCP politically and militarily outmanoeuvre the KMT, or were they just better able to reach the people and therefore win as a result of overwhelming popular support? By the end of this episode, we'll have a better understanding of whether the founding of the PRC was more a failure of the KMT or the overwhelming victory of the CCP. First, as always, let's talk background, because we have a few loose ends to wrap up from the end of the Second World War, following the Japanese surrender. So, as I mentioned in the previous episode, no one was really expecting the war to end that fast. There were certainly no signs of it coming to a close anytime soon in China, so it took a while for certain things to be resolved after August 15th. In total, there were around 2 million Japanese troops spread throughout China and about 1.75 million Japanese civilians. The nationalists had about 2.7 million troops and the communists had about 1 million. Now, instead of the nationalists and communists coming together to accept the peaceful retreat of the Japanese from the mainland, what ensued instead was utter chaos. In some major cities, the surrender was indeed formal and peaceful, In some places, there was continued fighting between all three sides, and in still others, Japanese troops were employed by local warlords to fight the communists. The Americans had chosen to support the KMT as the best hope for China's reunification, supplying them with equipment and helping them recapture cities, while the Soviet Union had begun supplying the CCP with weapons as soon as the Japanese puppet regime in Manchuria had collapsed. All of this chaos was able to break out because, as Chiang's American military advisor, General Wedemeyer, had predicted a few months earlier, the Chinese were simply not prepared for a sudden end to the war. And if anything, they were looking forward to the war dragging out a bit longer so that they would have more time to eliminate internal enemies and start rebuilding their regimes, leaving the fighting of the Japanese to the Americans. 
However, despite the sudden and violent outbreak of chaos, the US was still hopeful that they could bring peace to the nation by conducting negotiations between the two sides. In that same August, a US representative held a meeting between Mao and Chiang, where they agreed to set up a national assembly of all political parties and re-establish rule of law and freedom of speech in preparation for a transition to democracy. These negotiations quickly broke down as Chiang launched an attack on communist troops based in North China and the US ambassador at the time, Hurley, resigned. Hurley was replaced by General George Marshall in December of 1945 and immediately began arranging a new set of negotiations, not only between the communists and the nationalists, but inclusive of all of China's political interest groups. On the 10th of January 1946, he got the CCP and KMT to agree to a ceasefire and set up a meeting of a political consultative conference from the 11th to 31st of January. There were 38 delegates in total, eight from the KMT, seven from the CCP, and several others from the Youth Party, Democratic League, Democratic Socialist Party, Nationalist Salvation Association, etc. They basically represented China's liberal intellectual elite, and they came to an agreement on all military issues, as well as agreeing to establish a new parliament, constitution, and constitutional government that would have centralised control over the various armies of the nation. They also agreed to a massive scaling down of both armies and the creation of a national army of around a million troops. So it was all looking very promising, but unfortunately all of these plans rested on the goodwill of all parties involved, which quickly evaporated when it became clear that the two major parties themselves were split internally as to what extent they should trust the other side. In March, the KMT made revisions to the constitution that would have limited both regional power and the authority of other parties within the consultative conference. Feeling betrayed, the other parties refused to take further part in what they considered a sham of a national assembly, and fighting broke out immediately between the KMT and the CCP, whose forces in North China had quickly grown and succeeded in slowing down and even defeating some nationalist troops. Marshall tried one more time to help the two sides reach an agreement in June, but it was no use. Both sides were aware of the other's intention to wipe the other out, and both were preparing steadily for full-scale war. The war that took place lasted until 1949, but it was actually apparent to most that the KMT were losing the battle by around mid-1948, when the communists decided to switch from guerrilla warfare to conventional open-field battle. What followed was a slow erosion of the nationalist position from north to south between 1948 and 1949 until Chiang was forced to retreat with what was left of his government to the island of Taiwan. The communist position looked bizarrely neat when you kind of look at it from a timeline perspective. So in July 1946, the KMT launched their offensive and the communist forces in north and eastern China retreated swiftly relying on guerrilla warfare to defeat small pockets of Chiang's troops and recover any supplies, recruits and ammunition they could from defeated companies. But inevitably, the CCP suffered huge losses during this period. By 1947, however, Chiang's forces were depleted, overextended and just plain tired, while the communists, on the other hand, had had time to regroup and take the initiative to launch a counterattack switching from guerrilla warfare to an all-out offensive. Lin Biao, the commander of the Northeastern Armies, was able to recapture Manchuria by 1948. Though the communists were outnumbered in Shandong, 
through 1947, the KMT forces were unable to break them due to poor intelligence, overextension and a lack of resources, and lost the whole province to the communists by 1948. Again, by early 1948, the whole CCP was on the offensive, taking back areas lost in the retreat during the previous years and moving the main theatre of war to central China between the Yellow and Yangtze rivers, and also in North China, where they managed to link up previously disparate communist base areas. By early mid-1948, KMT troops were defecting in droves, joining the CCP wherever they took over major defensive positions, and in some cases just straight up fleeing out of demoralisation. Between late 1948 and early 1949, the communists closed in on the remaining government forces from the north and south, taking Jiangsu and Anhui provinces in December 1948 and entering Beijing on January 31st, 1949. These last defeats marked the end of the KMT's resistance in mainland China and the beginning of their retreat to Taiwan, with their seat of power, Nanjing, taken by the CCP in April. The KMT military strategy had been plagued by inflexibility, lack of centralised coordination, not knowing when a retreat could be tactical, and low morale leading to desertion. The CCP were outnumbered, but they were superior on all other fronts, being faster and more agile in movement and strategy, unified in thought, and making use of local supply lines by getting civilians on board through good governance and well-behaved military personnel. While this all paints a rather neat picture of the series of events, what is missing is the larger picture, namely the multiple factors that actually contributed to the KMT's downfall, and which were, depending on how you look at it, more or equally as important as the actual fighting between the two sides. If Mao was certain in 1948 that the KMT would be defeated within three years, as he proclaimed, how exactly did he know that? What other problems did the KMT face that went above and beyond military defeat, causing them to lose their grasp on the country, one that Sun Yat-sen had been fighting for since the turn of the century? For the rest of this episode, hopefully I can very clearly outline what all these problems were, and how it was that with a much smaller army, no national power, attacked from all sides, and with the odds stacked against them, how exactly the CCP were able to defeat the KMT. Let's begin with the KMT's inability to put China back on its feet following World War II and how this ultimately led to a loss in public and military confidence in Chiang. It's worth pointing out that everyone, Chinese, foreign, government, supporter or communist, everyone knew about the weaknesses and ineptitudes of the nationalist government, as well as the fact that throughout the late 1940s, the government was swiftly losing the support of the public. This was all a direct result of both official and unofficial action taken by the government, individual officials within the government, and members of the KMT army after the end of the war. It began with the government takeover of Japanese-occupied areas in 1945, which should have seen previously Chinese-owned properties and businesses restored to their rightful owners once the government had completed the transference from Japanese ownership. What happened instead was that the KMT officials kept a hold of said properties until they had taken literally everything of value from them, either to keep for themselves or to sell on for profit. We're talking factory machinery, houses, cars, even people's furniture. 
This was partly due to the government's poorly thought out and even more poorly implemented handover policies. But a bigger problem was the corruption that ran rampant through KMT ranks. Officials ignored business owners' claims to their own property, refused to reopen factories, meaning that hundreds of thousands of people were out of work even as the post-war years dragged on. By the end of 1946, unemployment had reached 8% in Shanghai, 20% in Canton, and 30% in the government's capital of Nanjing. Unemployment was exacerbated by another one of the KMT policy failures, namely their inability to deal with the hyperinflation that gripped the nation throughout the entire post-war period until late 1949. Things were already bad during the wartime period, when the government expenditure greatly exceeded its income, and average prices rose over 2,000 times between 1937 and 1945. By 1945, when the government did regain control over the nation's entire economy, their strategy for dealing with rapid inflation was to print more money. Now, this has never seemed like a sensible solution to me. I'm no economist, but this tactic has been used so many times in the past, and to my knowledge, it's never actually brought about the desired results, whatever they're supposed to be. Do let me know if I'm wrong on this one. Leave a comment or an email. But like I said, not an economist. It just seems really strange that you would start printing money in order to deal with inflation. I don't I don't really understand why people would think that works. But anyway, they started printing money and then bad things started happening almost immediately. Workers on fixed salaries started striking and the government was powerless to stop them due to the fact that they had lost organisational control over the cities during the war period. In 1946, there were 1,716 strikes in Shanghai alone, and this number had reached 2,538 by 1947. In one case, workers shut down the Shanghai Power Company entirely, cutting off power to the whole city. Initially, the government tried to blame the strike action on CCP infiltration, and they weren't exactly wrong about this, but it was really a deflection. The main problem was official mishandling of industry relations. In the end, the government had no choice but to cave to the workers' demands and peg their salaries to inflation rates, while also working to break up trade unions into smaller, more easily controlled official groups. The government tried to introduce a price freeze on all basic living items, such as rice, oil and coal, in January 1947, but it didn't even last the year. Wholesale prices in 1947 were 30 times as high as their 1945 equivalent, and by 1948, the government had to hand out ration cards to urban civilians. The rate of inflation also sped up. In June 1948, a sack of rice for 6.7 million yuan cost 63 million yuan by August of the same year, and similar patterns were seen in other household goods. The government tried to solve the overall problem of inflation by introducing a new currency, the golden yuan, for which all citizens would have to exchange their old farbi notes at a rate of 3 million farbi to 1 gold yuan. All foreign reserves and privately held gold and silver was also to be turned in to boost government reserves, and the KMT pledged to print only 2 billion of the new note in order to inspire greater confidence in the measure. However, the golden UN was really nothing more than a half-hearted attempt to solve a problem that would have taken a lot more time and dedication to, I imagine, even understand, let alone fix. 
The government wasn't really interested in overseeing the economy because it was more interested in fighting the CCP. And on top of their blasé attitude, official corruption and inflationary problems fed directly into one another. Official graft when dealing with the private and public industries, speculation with government money, and abuses by the rich and powerful of new financial policies with no government oversight meant that any honest attempt at fixing the problems caused by inflation were doomed to failure. When the new currency was introduced, those with large bank accounts abroad were supposed to report their savings to the government and convert their money, but there was no mechanism in place to make sure that this actually happened. Chiang Kai-shek's own son, Chang Qingkuo, who was put in charge of turning Shanghai's finances around, despaired at the greed, avarice, illegal trading and opium addiction that had such a tight grip on the city's most wealthy. When the policies he enacted to halt price inflation meant that farmers and merchants simply stopped selling goods in the city, Shanghai began to experience a shortage of food and manufactured goods, leading to panic buying, hoarding and the closure of businesses. By the end of 1948, the new gold yuan was spiralling out of control just like the old Fabi, and nothing could be done to halt the chaos. So that's that really for economics. Speaking more about official corruption, the governance and sort of way that the KMT behaved also affected their relationship with the USA, which was trying its level best to institute a proper national army and military training facilities in major KMT bases. Despite their best efforts, US personnel in China continually ran into roadblocks due to the lack of a clear hierarchy and the tendency of Chinese officers to just basically ignore orders that didn't come directly from those who they felt a personal loyalty towards. The Chinese often dismissed American advice as culturally incompatible, blaming the Americans' patronising attitude when things went wrong, while Americans were left to deal with the stubbornness of commanders who didn't want to change the way they did things, but still expected the US to supply them with everything they needed to defeat the communists. The difference in standards meant that Chinese tests often rated newly trained cadets as average, where American advisors would rate them unsatisfactory. The KMT also ignored repeated warnings that they were underestimating the CCP, delaying programs that would have allowed faster training of soldiers because they were worried that the Americans were interfering too much and trying to take control of China's political affairs. Um, In their defence, this was actually a plan of the Americans, but they changed their mind when they realised that it would basically just be too expensive and they had better things to do with their time. As politics and military were still closely intertwined in this period, and actually in every period, the American advisers often had no choice but to wait for decisions to go all the way through Chiang Kai-shek himself, which often meant that they had to wait years or just simply saw no results at all. Bad infrastructure, poor housing and terrible food by American standards, poor transport links and poor health and illiteracy among army recruits also contributed to the lack of progress of the American mission to create a Chinese national army worthy of international repute. Even though around 70% of the KMT's budget was spent on military affairs, the lack of money for rebuilding the country, or improving transport links, ironically hindered war efforts as it made it harder for the actual military to get around. When it came to carrying out battle plans that had taken months to prepare, orders went ignored and supply chains constantly fell through, 
partly because of bad planning, partly because of bad infrastructure, and partly because of bad governance and corruption. So, all in all, things were not going great for the KMT politically, socially, economically, or militarily, and the public definitely noticed. The KMT's decision to focus on fighting the CCP, instead of tackling more pressing social and economic issues, did not go down well with the educated urban classes, including students, intellectuals and business people. Their anger and frustration was expressed in a number of ways, from popular protest to outward support for the CCP in demonstrations, publications, print media and art. Students in particular were keen to express their anger against government corruption and vehemently opposed the continuation of the civil war. While the students were not necessarily pro-CCP, most of them recognised the need for political parties that basically just were not the KMT to be able to express different ideas and limit the unchecked power of the nationalists, who had turned China into a one-party state. Apart from four major nationwide movements that took place during this period, Students also distributed pamphlets, posted wall posters and slogans, gave lectures and drama performances, and held parades and meetings to voice their opposition to the KMT's policies, as well as to protest other issues, such as the rape of a Beijing university student by an American serviceman. The government overreacted, as expected, using bans and incidences of violence and arrests as tools to try and get the students to stop some of which ended in serious injury and even death. This obviously only riled up the students even more and pushed them further away from the party, which tried unsuccessfully to harness their students' energy and political enthusiasm for their own gain. It didn't help that the KMT were quick to blame student dissent on, once again, communist infiltration, which is basically how they labelled any challenge to their authority, even if that challenge were simply asking them to be held accountable. Interestingly, though the CCP didn't mind the charge necessarily, and there were some quote-unquote professional students who worked within campuses to promote agitation, the CCP didn't necessarily wholeheartedly embrace the student movement. If you remember from the episodes on Yan'an and the rectification movement, the CCP was inherently suspicious of intellectuals, and as the party of the workers and peasants, they felt that students lacked practical knowledge and basically looked down on the masses. They felt that students needed to be re-educated so that their thoughts and ideals were brought in line with those of the masses, and they could form an alliance with the CCP, as opposed to being the leaders of the revolution. Though he never tried to dissuade them from protesting, Mao was particularly cautious in his approach to students, saying that once society had become stable again after the war, quote, if politics has been liberated, that certainly does not mean that students in schools should not study diligently. On the contrary, it demands that in the schools, the students should study even better than before. Dissatisfaction with the KMT's performance was also expressed by artists, particularly through satirical cartoons calling out the party's corruption and incompetence. These cartoons were shown in exhibitions, some of which were actually held in Chongqing during the KMT's wartime regime, and others were published in magazines and newspapers. We discussed in an earlier episode how cartoons took off as a sort of new popular form of art in the 1930s and how that period quickly became the golden age of cartoons, especially in the fast-growing metropolis of Shanghai. Most cartoons were a reflection of modern society, its quirks and ills, and later of resistance against the Japanese, with many cartoonists joining the anti-Japanese league. 
Once the war with Japan was over, however, the creative eyes turned to the current government and its failings, and also addressed issues of freedom of speech and the KMT's authoritarian bent. Some prominent artists included Liao Bingxiong, whose Cat Kingdom series showed how money and not fairness dominated China's legal system, among other things, and Zhang Guangyu, who used the famous mythological story Journey to the West to portray the KMT's failings by replacing well-known scenes and characters with those from the modern day in order to reach a broader audience. One of the most famous cartoonists was Zhang Leping, who is most well-known for his creation of the San Mao comic series in the mid-1930s. The comic is about a young orphan named San Mao, or Three Hairs, and follows him as he joins the army, becomes a vagrant, and tries to survive amongst poverty and corruption in Shanghai. His comics were less of a political statement, and more pointing out the hardships faced by orphans during China's time in the Second World War, as well as during the Civil War. However, there are many quite blatant references to KMT policies or incompetencies, for example, showing abuse of low-ranking soldiers by KMT officers, or showing the effects of hyperinflation on prices after the war, which could change literally within hours. Zhang also went on to work for the CCP after 1949, creating propaganda posters and continuing his Sanmel series, which showed much more favourable depictions of the CCP's reign, depicting how much better life in China had become after the founding of the PRC. Some of these artists' works will be featured on the Sinobabble website under the episode materials page. There were also ethnic and regional tensions to consider. The Manchurians, initially glad to be rid of their Japanese rulers, quickly grew resentful of the KMT's discriminatory policies towards native Manchurians in the years following the war. Chang blatantly refused to trust local military leaders with any responsibility, and apparently some people even said that the Japanese rulers had been at least more effective, if equally as arrogant and arbitrary, as the KMT. These tensions were exacerbated by the KMT's policy of educational conversion, which forced those teachers and students who had been living in Japanese-held Manchuria to pass exams testing their loyalty to the KMT. Perhaps they wouldn't have been so offended by the implication that they had been enemy collaborators if those KMT officials who had actually collaborated with the Japanese during and after the war hadn't got off completely unpunished. In Inner Mongolia, ethno-nationalist policies also contributed to the failure of Chang's regime. The KMT had allowed the formation of the People's Republic of Mongolia in 1945 after the conclusion of the Sino-Soviet Treaty on the grounds that the Soviet Union would not aid the CCP during the Civil War. Mongolia had been outside the central government's control since basically the end of the imperial period, while Inner Mongolia had basically been erased from official Chinese maps since the Nanjing decade, both literally and through cultural and demographic policies of Sinicization. During Japanese occupation of China, the Inner Mongolians openly cooperated with the invaders for some self-autonomy, which was viewed by Chiang as ethnic aristocrats manoeuvring for personal power. He would not accept anything less than a unified, centrally ruled one-nation state, and portrayed China as it had been in ages gone by, a primarily Han nation that had absorbed many clans and groups, and the problem of Inner Mongolian reintegration was reduced to a frontier question. The KMT refused to allow Mongolian-style military banners or political leagues to operate like official bodies, and spread propaganda promoting cultural assimilation and Chinese nationalism. However, the KMT's weak grip on the nation, 
especially after a protracted war with the CCP in that area, meant that their policies held no sway, and the Mongolians were more inclined to support the communists, who openly promoted a high level of autonomy among ethnic Mongolian communities in China. So much for the failures of the KMT. Let's talk about the CCP's social policies and their strategy for winning over the majority of the population in China's countryside, which significantly boosted their campaign against the government. We've discussed already how the CCP was able to use local populations to provide supply chains and intel when fighting against the government. This was a result of the social policies that the CCP had implemented in their base areas. The CCP had been winning over huge swathes of the population with their land reform policies in the 1930s and 40s, which we had previously discussed in an earlier episode. Land reform, just to recap, was essentially a Robin Hood-style policy that redistributed land from rich peasants and landlords to the poor and landless, sometimes peacefully, and sometimes following bloody confrontation. In some areas, the CCP adopted a more moderate approach of rent and interest rate reduction, as well as tax reformation, particularly in those areas where tenancy rates were low and most farmers owned their own small family plots, making revolts against landlords pretty pointless. They also dealt with social issues, such as banditry, exploitative wages and prostitution, which in some cases were much bigger issues than those of tenancy rights. Any reform policies enacted rested on the foundation of struggle against one's oppressors. Struggle was the often violent action of either verbally or physically attacking rich peasants and landlords for their past crimes, seizing their assets and subjecting them to some form of punishment, which in many cases led to the deaths of some landlords. This required a heavy amount of propaganda amongst the peasantry, as well as the identification of those who would be trained to be activists and local cadres, and run CCP organisation from the grassroots, such as peasants and women's associations. These local groups were directly engaged by the party, and were allowed to voice their opinions and contribute to decision-making as part of the mass line policy, which I'll be explaining in more detail in a later episode. These tactics also allowed the CCP to recruit troops directly from the masses, a huge source of support for their regular standing army. Local militia units were responsible for garrison, guard and diversionary duties, while local self-defence corps organised supplies and brought wounded men back from the front lines. There were also general citizens groups who dug trenches and spied on the government enemies for the CCP. This isn't to say that the CCP had a perfect run in this period. In cases where the CCP had to retreat swiftly against oncoming KMT forces, especially during the early period in 1946, many of the villages that the People's Liberation Army abandoned were overrun with government soldiers, and any peasants' associations they had set up were destroyed and land given back to the landlords. In many cases, peasants were made to repay taxes and rent that had gone uncollected during the communist period, and in more extreme cases, one member from each family that had participated in the peasant revolts against landlords was shot and killed by government forces or local militia. It took a long time for the CCP to regain the trust of these peasants in the future. In general, however, locals could not help but notice how much better organised the CCP were, even when they weren't necessarily pro-CCP. In Manchuria, for example, the communists allowed local military units to retain their separate identity, even when they were absorbed into the larger CCP army. And local recruitment of troops and civilians meant that they were able to organise an effective resistance force against government re-encroachment in the area, 
This was a reflection of the less biased nature of the CCP, even if this more understanding approach didn't necessarily last after the founding of the PRC. So, in the end, was it a communist victory or a nationalist loss? In general, when thinking about this sort of question, it should be remembered that the KMT had everything to lose, while the CCP had everything to gain. The KMT had to worry not only about internal enemies, but also running the actual country, and holding up a reputation that had been slowly damaged over the course of the past 10 to 20 years, if you're including the Nanjing decade and everything that they failed to do during that period. The communists, meanwhile, had no responsibility to the wider nation, and they were able to essentially hide out in the mountains, building up their strength and unifying themselves under Mao's ideology before coming out to undermine the KMT just as they were at their weakest. That being said, the KMT really had no one but themselves to blame for all the things that went wrong in the post-war period, no matter how hard they tried to blame everything on the communists. They even had the backing of the world's largest superpower at the time, who were desperate to stop the spread of communism worldwide, but they managed to even mess up that golden opportunity. So really, I mean, I think it was a KMT loss just because they were being stupid, really. There's a quote from Chiang Kai-shek that actually one of my student presentations covered, and I feel like it really sums up the whole problem quite nicely. So he said in a diary entry in 1948, quote, After the fall of Kaifeng, our conditions worsened and became more serious. I now realised that the main reason our nation has collapsed, time after time through our history, was not because of superior power used by our external enemies, but because of disintegration and rot from within. End quote. So, that's it for this episode, guys. In the next episode, we'll be talking about the founding of the PRC in October 1949 and some of the initial policies the CCP implemented to cement their victory and ensure their control over the nation before they moved on to the introduction of their policies for the socialist transformation of China. I just want to quickly give a shout out to my students as well, any student that I've taught over the past three years. I actually teach a course on 20th century Chinese history and obviously there are some gaps in my own knowledge and the student presentations always help to fill in parts of those gaps, particularly about the second part of the Chinese Civil War. I got quite a lot of information from those presentations. So thank you to anyone who has ever been part of my classes and has presented particularly on this topic. And thanks to you, listener, for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the Sinobabble website for more details on this episode as well as some fun blog posts about China, including a new one I've just written about propaganda and the coronavirus. You can also check out the Twitter and YouTube channels of the same name, though both are woefully unupdated for a while now. I should be making a new video pretty soon though. Oh, and recommend the podcast to a friend if you like it. I'm trying to grow this year and hopefully start posting more when my PhD is finally over. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you tune in again next time.